afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for the presenter, please enter it in the Q&A bubble and we'll ask at the end of the presentation. If you're in person today, you will receive a SurveyMonkey link. And for those viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Dr. John Torres is Director of the Digital Psychiatry Division in the Department of Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, a Harvard Medical School affiliated teaching hospital, where he also serves as a staff psychiatrist and assistant professor. At a system level, Dr. Torres is the Medical Director of Behavioral Health Informatics for Beth Israel Lahim Health, he has a background in electrical engineering and computer sciences and received an undergraduate degree in the field from UC Berkeley before attending medical school at UC San Diego. He completed his psychiatry residency, fellowship in clinical informatics, and a master's degree in biomedical informatics at Harvard. Dr. Torres is active in investigating the potential of mobile mental health technologies for psychiatry and has published over 250 peer-reviewed articles and five book chapters on this topic. He directs the Digital Psychiatry Clinic at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and he serves as editor-in-chief for the journal JMIR Mental Health, web editor for JAMA Psychiatry, and currently chairs the American Psychiatric Association's Health IT Committee. Join me in welcoming Dr. Torres. Thank you all for having me. And I think this will hopefully be a relevant talk. There's a lot of things happening in the digital world. We're not gonna focus as much on classical video visits. I think there's a lot known about them. There's still more to do, but we're gonna focus more on mobile health and especially smartphones. And I think I'll start with by saying, it's definitely an evolving topic. These are some headlines from the last couple months, not even years. One is looking at, there actually was a company called Pair Therapeutics. They're now bankrupt, but you could have bought stock in Pair Therapeutics and they had FDA approved mental health apps that they were marketing. And again, if you just Google Pair Therapeutics, it was all over the news. It was probably a good way to lose $1.6 billion. So there's a lot of interest in the space. What's also interesting, this headline is from about last month. It says eating disorder helpline fire staff transitions to chatbot after unionization. And the, it's unclear if they really used a chatbot to do union busting, but the part that is true is about after a couple of days, NIDA, the National Source Association for Eating Disorders, put this out. They said, it's come to our attention that the current version of the Tessa chatbot running the body positive program may have given information that was harmful and unrelated to the program, we are investigating this immediately and have taken down the program until further notice and a complete investigation. So it's interesting that NIDA, this eating disorder group, tried to deploy a chatbot for unclear reasons, but when they did, it basically ended up causing harm and had to remove quickly. And again, I think this NIDA story is actually still evolving. If you just Google eating disorder chatbot in Google News. So we can't cover the entire space of digital mental health around smartphones, but what I'll try to do is cover three things. We'll talk about new types of data. 
and how they could be important for your clinical practice, what to look out for. We'll look at new ways to use this digital data and kind of what is the role of smartphones in this technology in care. I will say it's not text-based therapy. That's my hot take, at least. I think this headline from New York Magazine, The Lunacy of Text-Based Therapy, really summarizes it very well. But in discussion, we can have a we can have debate on it. Then we'll talk about new standards and ways that you can help identify safer apps for your patients or pick ones that may matter. And again, even if you're listening and you're not planning to use apps in care, I think your patients are getting direct to consumer advertisements about these. It's all over the media. It'll be on bus stop ads. So they, they, they're likely seeing it and have questions. So I think even if you don't want to use these technologies, being able to articulate why you may or may want, not want to use one is important. So if we think about new types of data coming out, clearly all of us use things like the PHQ-9, the GAD-7, other self-reported scales. That, that is what our, our bread and butter is, is reported outcomes. With smartphones, there's a potential to get a little bit more data. And sometimes we conceptually think of this as active and passive data. And active data would be anything that requires active engagement. So if you ask your patient to take a survey on the phone, if they don't actively engage and take the survey, you're not going to get any data. On the other hand, passive data would be something like step count. I could call on someone listening and say, tell me your step count on August 24th, 2019. Your phone has probably stored that. It exists already. And your phone probably has idea of how much you slept before. It may not be perfect. It may have idea of kind of how where you go on weekends. It has some behavioral data your phone is collecting in the fact it's just being a phone. And right now, all that data is clearly going to Apple and Google or the phone manufacturing data. But there's a lot of behavioral data you can imagine that's locked into the phone. And sometimes we consider this idea of active and passive data together to be digital phenotyping. I've heard one group call it phonotyping, which is a nice pun. Some people can call it smartphone sensing. I, I, I think the term doesn't matter, but the idea that there is a lot of information from phones that most of our patients have already is interesting. And I think if the concept makes sense, or just imagine if you could have very good sleep information for free at your fingertips with a patient you're dealing with, that would be useful and practical. I think there are a lot of assumptions that go into this data and we don't have to get into technical terms, but if you think about it, to get this, we're getting some degree of permission, say, of someone's geolocation. They're, they're giving us permission to collect information where they are. We're transforming it into something like trips. We're then kind of making assumptions about what that means to be how long at home or not home. So. We, we, have, we can get that raw data from the phone with permission, we can do it ethically, but someone has to define what is home time or, or where is it. And you can imagine there's, other, there's many different metrics we could define, right? Step count at the bottom makes sense, but what if we wanna estimate sleep from this? Would we make it a kind of a combination of how the phone is moving, the accelerometer, when the screen is turned off and perhaps when the phone is at home, what happens for our patients who may be homeless? Is it different? But the point of slide is we have to think very carefully about the raw data that's being used to build these behavioral features that's going to be then used to kind of hopefully give us clinical insight into what's happening. 
And I think sometimes you may see different advertisements where it's got at least wearables or kind of rings. And they say, just by wearing the wearable or wearing the ring, you can kind of perfectly understand behavior, which is clearly not true. I think the people making those claims have never actually worked with patients. But what we figured out is at least if someone comes to and says, well, just by looking at the phone movement, I can really understand behavior. What we figured out in, in doing this work was if you asked a phone and you get permission from your patient, they're willing to share GPS so you can understand how much time they have at home versus not home, or they're willing to share accelerometer so you can know how many steps they took or not steps they took. If you have an app that's collecting this, and I'll show you the approach we do, but the patient never opens the app, they never engage, they just kind of leave it in the background. Apple and Google as phone manufacturers will actually degrade the signal you get. They'll say, well, the person isn't opening this app, they're not useful. So even though John Torres is asking for all this data to make behavioral features, we're not gonna give it to him. And the point of these graphs on the left where you see the curve going down is you can see if someone hasn't opened the app after two days, four days, six days or eight days, we really get very poor data quality, which means you really cannot trust the features that get collected. So the point is, like all data sources we consider in psychiatry, whether we get a lab test, when we get self-reported outcomes, sometimes if we get EEG, we really have to make sure that we trust the underlying data. So I think the smartphone data is going to become a very important new source of data for our field, but we have to ask the same questions that we'd ask of any other data source. So on our team, we do a lot of this work and you can see on this graph of our data quality, we learned this around September, 2021 and our data quality got better. But I think a lot of times when you get presented with the smartphone data, you should just be a little bit skeptical. And what's interesting is Google has actually done studies where they've tried to look at smartphone patterns versus depression. Other universities, there's one in Chicago that did a very large study where they looked at what is the pattern and association between smartphone data and depression. And our team in Boston tried to replicate. We said, if someone uses their smartphone, we understand their sleep, their mobility patterns, how much, what, what is different each day. And we correlate that to things like the PHQ-9, the GAD-7, PSS is perceived stress scale, usually loneliness, PQ-16 is prodromal 16, PSQI is sleep quality index. And the reason I have four different graphs here is we tried to basically copy what Google had done in correlating smartphone metrics of behavior to these scales. But we realized depending on data quality, if you take all the data, if you take none of the data, if you take high scores, low scores, you actually get out very different correlational matrices. And you can make very different interpretations about what is the impact of sleep on my patient. So I think that we're going to see in this year and especially next year, a huge push to kind of collect more information on the phone, especially to collect these sensors. But I think the main takeaway is we have to be careful about do we trust the underlying data? And if we are going to make clinical decisions based on things which do make sense, home time, screen duration is always in the media, right? We, we saw the Surgeon General put out a report two weeks, or maybe a month ago, saying that screen duration in social media is toxic for youth. But how are we actually collecting that data, right? Do we trust it? So to do this type of research, our team has developed a free and open source smartphone platform that we don't charge anything for. Anyone can use it around the world. And we've called it MindLamp. MindLamp stands for Learn, 
assess, manage, prevent, and ideas in the learn screen, you could yourselves write your own content. You could put different tips that are relevant to patients that you see. In assess, you could put the questionnaires that you want your patients to take. In manage, you could record your own mindfulness or you could use some of the CBT skills that we have. And in prevent, we share back data we collect of patients. So in essence, we saw so many apps on the marketplace that we did not like that we said we could probably build our own that would serve 80% of the functionality. And this is what, again, a patient would see while using MindLamp. We can toggle off or on the passive data as I talk about the sensors. So with permission, we can have in the background, the app is collecting information on home time, on steps, on mobility patterns, on sleep, or we can just use it to do stuff with the app in the foreground. And What's nice about it, we've built it to be rather flexible. So this is the app where it's deployed in India. And you can see most of the parts are translated. We've changed the icons. The content is different. It's been culturally adapted for what would work in India. But I think it's certainly a flexible thing. I think if there's enough interest from all of you, it wouldn't be impossible. You guys could be running the app. All of the data would stay at your institution. We don't want to see it legally. I don't think we can take your data anyway. But the point being, it's a nice approach. And how we use it is we do a lot of work on predicting relapse in patients with psychosis. I think despite at least my best efforts, I'm very bad at predicting when a patient will have a relapse. I'll see someone for a monthly visit, they'll be doing well on their medications and you'll get a call from the emergency department that your patient has relapsed or psychotic. And we've always wondered, is there an earlier way to understand when a patient with psychosis may be experiencing a relapse? And using MindLamp, again, because we collect that data in the background around their activity patterns, we can get surveys, we can get some cognitive tests. What we do, is we have each person is analyzed against themselves. So it's a kind of personalized comparison. And for the first two weeks when someone starts the study, we assume that's their baseline. So we say based on your mobility, based on your phone, your screen time, your sleep duration, your sociability, the surveys, that's John's baseline. And each day after the baseline, we kind of have that dotted line. And we say is John's activity on the phone below John's baseline plus an assumption for, for normal variance. And if it's below that, we don't worry. If the value for any of the phone values we pick up is above the baseline, we go, that's a different behavior. That, that behavior is now a statistical anomaly. Something is different. And what we found is often within our patients in Boston, when we'd see a couple of those smartphone sensors begin to go up together, that would almost be an early warning sign that someone could be at risk of relapse. The red line in this plot is when the patient had a relapse. And conceptually, it makes sense, right? If your patient is going to relapse, they're probably gonna have changes in their sleep pattern at home before they come to your attention. They may respond differently to surveys, their mobility pattern may be different. Not always, but it makes sense. A smartphone could give you a little bit of a clue. Is something different in my patient's behavior? So you can imagine this probably could work for relapse and depression. Are our patients of bipolar going to become manic? Are our patients of substance abuse perhaps going to relapse on something? So we're really just trying to leverage the phone sensors to pick up changes. And again, because most patients have the phone on them constantly, it gives us a much easier way to keep track on people and how they're doing. So we had made this work in Boston for schizophrenia, 
but we were interested, could it work in different settings? So we were lucky to have funding from the Wellcome Trust United Kingdom. And we said, let's take this model to India. If it works in Boston, we're picking up relapse. Surely it should work anywhere else in the world. So we went to two sites in India. We went to Bangalore, which is more in the central north of India, a little bit more rural. And we went, sorry, Bang Bangalore is in the middle. It's actually the tech hub of India. And on the left is Bhopal, which is more in the central north, a little more rural. And we looked at patients who were young, had schizophrenia, so at higher risk of relapse, they had a diagnosis. And we said, if we follow these patients for up to a year, can we begin to understand when they may have a risk of relapse based on the smartphone data? And could we pick up the same patterns of, is our prediction gonna be as good for people at Boston at the hospital I'm at or BIDMC as it would be for patients in Bangalore as it would be for Bhopal? So the first step is we culturally adapted the MindLamp app. It wasn't too hard because even in India, we, we asked people, what are the common themes that you want to be using a smartphone for? One was the app had to be engaging. They had to want to use it. It had to look nice. It had to give information back as you see the data sharing. And people were interested, even in rural parts of India, they said, look, COVID is restricting our mobility. We're in lockdown. We'd like to do more things on our phone. So, so I think we definitely changed a lot of parts of the app, but it wasn't hard to do. And again, this is something that if you guys had a tech team or someone want to help with it, it's very easy to change it. So we, we culturally adapted the app for India and we again kind of looked for these relapse patterns. And this is again a figure for one patient like before. This is a person from India, a little bit different that we show active and passive data and data quality metrics, so metadata, but the same idea of anomaly detection. We have a baseline for this one person he actually relapsed twice, but you can see over a year, we kind of had these signals and we definitely have false positives, right? In the middle around day 200, we had some surveys that were different, but you can see how a system like this over a year is not generating too many false positives. It's not perfect. It's not gonna tell us 100% the patient is going to relapse or the patient as well, but you can begin to see, especially in the weeks kind of before for a relapse, if you almost squint and just look at the large trend in data, you can see that things begin to go up around day 50 and maybe around day 275, a lot of things are there. And of course, there's assumptions in what is the threshold for each patient, what data we collect, but I think it's a nice approach in that it could give us information that we could act upon. It doesn't generate too, too many false positives of what to do with. So we're still certainly investigating how that works here in Boston. We're also doing a little bit more global research with this approach. So we kind of just talked about patients with early course schizophrenia, so they've had their first episode. And of course, one open question to feel is for patients sometimes called clinical high risk for psychosis, I guess it used to be called schizophrenia prodrome. When I was in residency and training, but for these patients who are usually college age, they're having symptoms that could be early signs of potential psychosis, but you don't know. Are they using substances for the first time? Is it early bipolar disorder? Is it a mood disorder? Is it just a phase they're going through? So this is a large study that's sponsored by National Institute of Mental Health, and it plans to follow about a thousand people at clinical high risk for schizophrenia. 
for up to two years. And you can see from the picture, they'll kind of get MRI, they'll get EEG, they'll get blood markers, they'll get neurocognitive testing, but they'll also get digital biomarkers. And you can see the words passive and active there, which you guys are now experts at. And with that passive and active data, you can see longitudinally with all these sites around the world, we'll hopefully be capturing all of this data. So we'll say of the patients that did go on to develop schizophrenia, was there something different in their digital biomarkers? Or if there's something different in their brain scans, we can say, well, did the digital biomarkers help pick it up? Because I think as all of us know, it's much easier to get permission to work with someone's smartphone than it is to have them come in and get scanned or to draw blood. So I, I think we're gonna begin to see this digital phenotyping research reach its potential of really helping us answer important questions at large scale with it. And what's interesting about this study is I think the data set will be released into the research public domain as it goes through. So in a couple months, actually a couple of weeks, anyone who's interested should actually be able to download the first wave of data from these 43 sites around the world. One thing while focusing on the digital phenotyping that our team is excited about is we, in working with schizophrenia, but also depression, we have a lot of patients who have cognitive deficits. In the average clinical visit, we never have time to fully assess cognition. I actually don't know many clinicians that can fully assess cognition as part of routine care, even though, though we know it is such a driver of disability and impaired functioning. So one of our current research aims is to understand, could the smartphone offer us quick cognitive tests and markers? They would not replace neuropsychiatric testing. But if we start someone on a new medication, if someone's complaining about changes, could we at least learn about is cognition for the person better or worse? So it's in the early stages of it. I think what's also fascinating about this digital phenotyping is even if you're listening going, John, this is too much. I don't want this data. I don't need it. Apple is actually developing its own version of it. And it's unclear why Apple is doing it, but you can get research permission to get something called SensorKit. And what SensorKit is, is it lets your app that's been approved by Apple and been approved by an IRB access extra information. So usually we can just get what's a screen offer on. So we get how much screen time does someone have. But with Apple Sensor Kit, we get information of what type of app was open when. So I don't know what someone was doing on social media apps, but I can tell that the person, how many hours were on social media versus news apps versus health apps. And I think that can be interesting. So this is a graph for one patient. And in red, you can see this patient has a lot of time on media apps. So, so we tried to figure out what does it mean that this person is on media apps? And we, we turned out that Apple categorizes Instagram as a media app. So you can see you actually begin to get information on, there actually is a lot of social media this person is using. So I think Google doesn't yet have a package that kind of offers the same level of data, but I think if we're seeing Apple releasing this thing called SensorKit, you, you can Google it and learn more about it. I think we're seeing that this type of data is gonna at least try to have a role. And I think it's our job, again, as we started out to interrogate to say, well, what is the data quality? What are the features? What are the biases? So there are more and more of these kind of digital phenotyping studies, but as we talked about, most of them have not been replicated. It's very hard 
to kind of replicate these studies. We're still learning more about it. But I think it's worth being aware of it. And again, the fact that Apple is doing this should make us think that we probably have to confront it, whether you like it or not. It's worth being aware of it in the field. But as we're talking so much about smartphones and kind of this new type of data, I think one question is, what can we do with it? Is it actually going to be equitable and accessible? And certainly what we found in using smartphones for research and for care in Boston was a lot of people had a smartphone, but they may not necessarily have the digital literacy and skills to use a smartphone as a tool towards recovery and health. We'd find our patients were say, well, my social worker gave me this phone and they dialed in these two numbers and that's it. But they wouldn't actually know how to use the calendar to set reminders. They wouldn't know how to use Google Maps to find public transit options to get where they want to go. They wouldn't know how to say download the CVS or Walgreens app to get automatic refills on medications or use the portals. So we began a set of digital literacy efforts really geared towards people, especially with serious mental illness, especially bipolar and schizophrenia. And what we do is we have basically a set of groups. We go into kind of community centers, into inpatient programs. And over eight weeks, we teach people basic smartphone skills, starting with how to use Wi-Fi versus your data plan, up to pretty advanced skills. And what we found is even patients with serious mental illness can definitely learn how to use their smartphones as a tool towards recovery. It's really just that no one is teaching them how to do it, right? They're a little bit more isolated. They say don't have younger children who kind of force them to learn use these technologies. And a lot of times the healthcare system doesn't say it's our job is to teach you technology. No one can kind of figure out who digital literacy is owned by, but I think it's it's certainly important. And we've almost created a role called a train-to-trainer role. So we have what we call digital navigators that are people that can really teach our digital literacy courses. They can also help clinicians and patients find the best mental health apps that are uniquely customized to that patient. They can help integrate apps into care because they can kind of check the app dashboard data, they can summarize it, they can work on engagement with the patient. So we think that a digital navigator is a very versatile role because it not only covers digital literacy to make sure any digital efforts are going to be more equitable, but it can also help with clinical implementation because the clinician gets some help in working with digital data as well. And we have, we're working on online training for digital navigators. I think an online training alone doesn't make everything better. We have too many online trainings in the age of COVID. So I think it's really best something that we often do in a five or six hour seminar. We kind of teach potential digital navigators, be they volunteers, be they people with mental illness themselves, peers, be they clinicians, be they administrators. We kind of go through different skills in using a smartphone for recovery and mental health. So I think the online training from SMI Advisor will be actually a very important tool to hopefully make it more scalable in what we do. So if I put these pieces together, we have this kind of digital navigator role. We've talked about digital phenotyping all the data. So our team felt it, even though we do a lot of research, it's, we said, if we're doing this, we should be using it to help people today. We should be using it in care ourselves. So we have a clinic and we call it the digital clinic because we're not good at naming things, but we get referrals from our primary care across our healthcare systems network. And patients come to our digital clinic and they meet with me or one of our psychologists or one of our 
trainees for a 45 minute session a week. And of course we give them the MindLamp app. And within the MindLamp app, we wanna do two things with you. And you guys know these right. We wanna get digital phenotyping data to learn about your behaviors as related to your mental health. And we want you to do homework exercises and therapy on the app itself. And what we notice quickly is if you just tell the patients, here's some stuff to do it, the patients won't engage and the clinicians don't have time to review all the data and kind of bring it back up. So we added two steps. After the session, the digital navigator can quickly check in with the patient. They can customize the sensors and homework on the app for what the patient wants. And during the week, the digital navigator can be an engagement check-in, say, is the patient doing the homework? They can summarize what that data looks like for the clinician. They can help the patient answer any questions. So when it comes time for the weekly visit or monthly visit, however you set it up, the clinician just has a handout that says, John, here's his scores. Here's the homework he did. Here's the notes that he had. So the clinician has more time to be a clinician, but they have this really nice data presented to them ready to go. And the digital navigator kind of on the wings is helping facilitate all of these parts. So our clinic is eight weeks. So you kind of get eight weeks around the cycle. We used to have it as unlimited, but we realized that most people got better in eight weeks and we want to increase access to care. So it's a more short-term clinic based on the unified protocol, which is a nice transdiagnostic treatment, a little bit of CBT and ACT and mindfulness perhaps all combined into one. We published in December of last year, at least our most current iteration of the clinic by PHQ-9 scores and GAD-7 went down. That's a good thing because we're giving people clinical care, there's a digital navigator, there's an app. So we didn't have a control group, but at least it's going in the right direction. We're excited to start a new project for our emergency department, or one of them, where patients who come into this emergency department and are able to discharge, they don't need inpatient hospitalization, they're not an immediate safety risk, to help facilitate moving quicker through the ED and moving out of the ED, we'll begin to offer people the digital clinic because again, we don't have a long wait list because we're a short-term care and we can be efficient. So it's about to start this project, but we're working on the workflow of again, you see the digital consult, but patients will kind of be in the clinic using MindLamp and it'll hopefully give the ED a quicker way to offer resources and service to people that are stable, that need something, but we don't want them to wait in the ED for hours, if not days, before we can connect them up to some type of care. So I think we're learning about new models of it. And you can see kind of, if I go back here, it's kind of hybrid care, right? We're doing a little bit of synchronous telehealth. We're really augmenting it with the smartphone app. We're, we're not replacing care for anyone. We're not using AI to predict things. We're not triaging people. We're just trying to say, if we bring, can we make care more personalized? Can we collect information that may help a clinician learn, learn about sleep differences, physical activity, lifestyle behaviors that often do make a difference? And of course, the clinician doesn't have to act on the digital data, but usually we do ask the patients to do their homework. And what's nice is you can't say the dog ate my CBT homework anymore because it's digital. You also can't really backfill your homework because it's timestamped of when you did it. So I do think even the fact that we get more engagement in homework alone is a reason that people could get better in the clinic. So I, I think in, so we've talked about how we used the data. I think one challenge, again, even if you don't want to use digital phenotyping, even if you don't want to have a clinic that uses all these tools, that's 
perfectly fine. But I think one thing we all have to be able to do is to talk to patients about the risks and benefits of smartphone apps and related digital mental health technologies. As I said, I think the direct-to-consumer advertising for these tools is phenomenal what the budgets are. It's probably bigger than all of our hospitals combined per month, what these companies spend directly advertising to people and saying, use our app, sign up for this online service. It's pretty wild. So for about the last that was six years with the American Psychiatric Association. We've had this system called the App Evaluation Framework. Even though it is housed in the American Psychiatric Association, it's very transdisciplinary. We actually had a committee before COVID. These are their pictures. Uh, we had social workers, we had nurse practitioners, we had therapists, we had students, we had patients, we had certified peer specialists kind of all come together and talk about the model. And in essence, I, I think we all agreed on it. You can just Google APA app evaluation framework as an American Psychiatric Association. You'll get to a website with videos, information, and checklists. But really all we said is, if you're looking for an app, you kind of want to start with a pyramid. You want to start at the bottom. It should have the right context and background, right? It should be culturally appropriate. It should work on the phone a patient has. That, that makes sense. And then the risk should be low. The evidence should be high or acceptable. It should be easy to use. And the data should kind of meaningfully do something for someone's mental health care. So really, this is just kind of codified common clinical sense, right? We're saying risk-benefit has to be favorable. It has to be tolerable, right? Someone else is going to use it. And it has to be for a purpose. So you can almost apply this framework for, I think, anything in life or certainly any treatment that you would do. But I, I think these layers. Well, they seem simple, especially in digital mental health around apps. They're not always met, or we still have a lot of issues. And if we start kind of with that ground layer, I think anytime someone brings an app to me, I just kind of first think about like, does the patient have the digital literacy and the digital equipment, right? The phone to be able to use this thing, right? Because if that doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. If the app only exists on Apple phones and the patient has an Android, who cares if the app right, is so complex and has so many passwords and two-factor authentication or requires a lot of money and the patient can't afford it? It doesn't really matter, right? The, the ground just doesn't matter. And thankfully, there's a lot of apps. So sometimes this is less of an issue. But I think as hospital systems and kind of departments, if we are going to integrate technology, we really should have some efforts towards digital literacy to make sure everyone can benefit. If we are moving people towards digital things, I think it's just, it, it makes sense to make sure everyone can partake. But I think the risks become especially interesting for these apps. And this is a headline from March 3rd of this year. It's not too long, right? May, June, July, like 10 weeks ago. And it says the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, says online counseling service better help push people into handing over health information and broke its privacy promises. So what happened is the federal government sued this kind of commercial telehealth online provider for basically breaching people's privacy. And if you Google the story against recent, there's very interesting, juicy details about how egregious it was. But if you think about it, to get the federal government to sue you takes a lot of badness because they really only want to sue you if they know they can win the case. 
and you're only going to come to your attention of doing something really, really bad. So the fact that the federal government, the FTC, took time out of its whole agenda to go after kind of an online mental health service tells you that things are not really good in the world of privacy. There was an $8 million fine, or $7.8 million fine associated with this, so a huge fine, and the company settled it immediately. They just paid it. They didn't even want to challenge it. So it also tells you things are, are not good. And I think one of the reasons why there's such privacy breaches is this was an interesting study from Duke that said they actually called up different organizations called data brokers and said, can we purchase mental health information? And this is a quote from their paper. They said, pricing for mental health information varied. One data broker charged $275 for 5,000 aggregate accounts of Americans' mental health records, while other firms charged upwards of $75 to $100,000 a year for subscription licensing access to data, which included information on mental health condition. And you go, how can this work? All of us can't sell our patients' data. We're, we're bound by HIPAA. But what happens is a lot of these mental health apps especially are not bound by HIPAA. Their wellness devices and their terms and conditions. And because of that, they're allowed to get away with things that we would all be fired immediately for doing. But if you kind of read the mouse print of a lot of these apps, they'll kind of say we're a wellness device. And that makes things like this actually legal, which is very concerning. This better help one is even more flagrant because what they did was illegal, but the privacy issues really do matter and are bad. I think. The second layer and kind of looking at apps, so let's just say we find one that's private, it doesn't abuse our data, and they, they do exist. We'll talk about how to find those good ones in a moment. The question is, is the app going to make my patient feel better, right? Is it actually going to be evidence-based? We don't want to recommend things that are a waste of time. And a lot of times, I think you'll be marketed now, app companies will come to you or don't even come to kind of the physician wellness groups or, or the clinical wellness groups and say like, you should buy for yourselves as an employee benefit, or you should give this as a patient benefit, our app. And they'll say, we did a randomized control study and we were very effective. And the trick that we've noticed is, and we did a meta-analysis on it, a lot of times the app companies are comparing themselves to nothing, to a weightless control. So they say one group gets an app and all the fun, and other group gets nothing. And they, as we all know from any basic study, if you give people something, it's better than nothing. So. In this meta-analysis, what we showed here, where it kind of says active and on the kind of third set of bars down, some studies do use an active control. They compare a smartphone app to a different smartphone app. And there still is an effect, but it's, it's much smaller. And you can see the other kind of dots are more to the right. The, when you compare an app to a weightless control, it is a little bit, it looks better. But again, if you compare anything to a weightless control, it looks better. So it's not really an important question. And to give an example of why it's so important to do these active controls in digital health studies, this is Pair Therapeutics from the company that went bankrupt, but they were trying to get FDA approval for an app for schizophrenia. And the FDA said, well, we're getting sharper on regulating these stuff. We want you to have an active control. So Pair Therapeutics said, well, what would an active control be for a smartphone app that does kind of therapy for schizophrenia? So they had a solution, they, and this is from the paper. It says, similar to Pair 004, which is kind of their therapeutic app, they said the sham app delivered three daily notifications, prompting the participant to open the sham app and then display the prescription timer, a clock, for the remaining duration of app availability. 
The sham control arm was chosen to account for the non-specific effects of engagement with a smartphone. The sham app did not deliver any active coping skills. It appeared similar to Pair 004 app in its initial screen and randomization to the sham or Pair 004 was conducted at the time of app downloading unbeknownst to a person. So I think we get to set up, right? You get the app, it looks the same. You open it, you may get a clock that counts down or you may get a super fancy therapy app. But what happened in this study is you can see the sham actually had a greater reduction in symptoms. The people that got the clock, basically it turned out to be non-significantly different, but both groups improved. And I, I think that's very important to keep in mind, right? When we actually have an active control, people feel better. And then we actually found that the, the actually active intervention in red, people got better, it's good, but it wasn't any different than that. So it's almost like you wanna have the Tetris test. You wanna say, is this mental health app any better than Tetris? Because Tetris is probably beneficial to some extent. You're distracted, your mind is doing different things, but Tetris is free. It doesn't take your health information. You can pick what style you wanna play it in. So, so I just think we have to set the bar higher and think about, active controls and kind of get out of this era of weightless controls. And I think it helps us learn about things like this that look positive in feasibility studies that maybe would not be. So I think the evidence is a little bit hard to address at this day and age. We don't have that many high quality studies like this. So we, we have to use a little bit of clinical judgment does it make sense. We also have things like engagement is the third layer of the pyramid, or you can see kind of in that ease of use, like if we give something, something that so we find it's really private and it seems to work, it's actually gonna help people more than Tetris, will people use it? This was a study from 2019, but it looked at hundreds of thousands of Americans who had downloaded a mental health app, we don't know why, but you can see the retention rate, which was measured by did they actually open the app? After five days, we've lost like 90% of people. After 10 days, we've lost like 95% of people. And there's a couple of people that hang on there, it's good. But you can see that engagement becomes very, very low. And I think in the mental health field, right, we work with engagement. That's part of what we do is we help people change behaviors. We help people engage in helpful behaviors. We help extinguish unhelpful behavior. So, we know all about engagement. We know that engagement is hard. We know even taking a medication is hard. Adherence rates are not perfect either. But I think almost every mental health app we've seen, if it doesn't have kind of a digital navigator support or your support as a clinician, these engagement rates really come into it. And I think sometimes when you hear these stories about the app being wonderful, there's always gonna be a couple kind of true believers that use it all the time. That's great. We, we wanna celebrate that. But I think we have to realize that most of the population has stopped using the app. I think we have a lot to learn about engagement still. Why do people stick with an app? Why do some people not use it? Why do some people get good results? Our team has been looking at this idea of a digital therapy alliance. Do some patients actually make an alliance to the app? Do they actually feel it has kind of transference to, to a smartphone? It's a little bit abstract as an idea, but I think we do have to kind of consider what do people, why do some people use the app more? And if people have a greater alliance to an app for whatever reason, could that predict why they'd engage more? But point being, we've gone through these layers of, again, you can see in the top left. And if I said, you all should find apps that meet these principles for your patients, you would say, that's great, John, but I don't have two hours to research every app that a patient brings me or is interested in. And to do it, and on top of that, 
apps are always changing and updating. So in essence, we took the American Psychiatric Evaluation Pyramid, as you see here, and again, still on the APA's website. And we said, could we make this more practical? So we basically did the research to turn those questions into a database. So we said for privacy, again, I don't know what your patient wants for privacy. I don't know what your threshold is. So I can't really say this app is private or not, but I could give you questions like, does the app have a privacy policy, yes or no? Can you delete your data, yes or no? Is PHI shared, is de-identified data shared? Does it meet HIPAA? Can you opt out data collection? So your patient may have a certain threshold to what they want. You may have a certain recommendation of what you think is important. Or your patient may be an Instagram influencer and not care at all about this because they're live streaming your visit. They probably should be doing that, but point being, for evidence, as we saw, it's really hard to know as an app evidence-based because we have so few kind of placebo-controlled studies. So all we could tell you is, is, does it look well-written? Does it at least do what it claims? Is it something that the patient can use on their own? Could it cause harm because it's dealing with suicide? Does it have any supporting studies? So, so we have some very basic questions, but the reason we have these questions is these are things we can usually all agree on to some extent or we can kind of say, this is true. Because I can't really tell you, is the app engaging for your patient? You'd have to say, well, I have a patient who really wants videos and they want to have peer support. So those two buttons matter, but my patient may want chat and they may want collaboration textbook provider. So the point is, we put this all into a website that you can access now called mindapps.org. It works best on a computer, but you can pull it up on a phone. And what you can do in mindapps.org is when you go to the application library, you kind of can pick the filters you want around costs, supported conditions, developer types, and we have a lot of different filters. And what you do is you meet with your patient and say, what are they interested in? And we should have enough filters. We have 105, you don't need to know all of them. But with those 105 filters, the database you can see in the middle here will automatically search and say, well, here's the apps that do what you want. And in this case, I kind of clicked PTSD. So it, it showed me all the apps for PTSD. It showed me about 20 of them. And then you could say, well, filter them by ones that are free. And we have that. Or filter ones that are made by an academic medical center. And they'll probably come back with none. So it, it, it doesn't tell you what the best app is for your patient. It doesn't tell you what the worst app is, but it gives you a more rational way to search for apps. If you notice, we don't have stars or number of downloads because we think those are popularity metrics that really don't tell you anything about whether you want to use the app or not. So we think it's a fun tool to use with patients. If you have an app that we have not had up here that you're seeing, please email us, we'll get it done. If we've made a mistake, each app, when you click it, there's kind of an exclamation mark, you can flag something. But we've committed to updating this database every six months. We go through every single data point and make sure what's different, what's changed. So our guarantee is at least information is completely free. We're supported by a foundation. There's no advertising on it. There's nothing hidden. But we think it's just a nice tool that you can give directly to patients who may know some of these terms, or you can use yourself to kind of see what would be useful for a patient who may be interested. We do a lot of research on the data in the database. This is one of our recent papers. We looked at what's different from apps that are free or how many apps are totally free versus free. And we basically try to figure out our apps that are completely free 
better or worse than ones that charge money. In essence, what we found is there's not a large difference. And, but again, all the data keeps changing and going up and down, but I think there's a lot to be done in it. I think what we like about this project as well is it certainly has gone into the public domain. I think it's something that people can relate to. Cosmopolitan Magazine had an article on it to help young people kind of think about what mental health app they want. So I do think it's something that we can at least show with people or at least frame a discussion. So if a patient says, I really want to use this app, we, you can now say, well, do you think it's private? Is it evidence-based? Is it engaging? Is it something that could be useful? Or you could say, is it in mind apps and kind of say what it has? Or you could say, well, I know you want a mindfulness app and I know you don't want to pay money. Let's see which ones exist and get a short list of ones for you to try. Or you could say, I like that you brought me an app, but my gosh, the privacy policy, it looks like there's none of these things on mind apps. Maybe we could help you find one that's more private and secure. So I think if nothing else, you can structure a basic discussion. And again, the pyramid layers that we picked were looking for privacy first, then evidence, then engagement, then kind of clinical utility. You don't have to follow that order. You can pick any filters you want on mind apps as you want to do it. We, we had our model, but again, what works for each patient, people you see could be potentially different. So I think I have more than three minutes left. We have about eight minutes for questions. So I'll try to take some questions we have time for. So thank you. Dr. Torres, I have a question. Yeah. I am the uh, medical librarian here at Northeast Georgia, and I wanted to know if you and your partners have ever considered partnering with public libraries or medical libraries um, in your area with this project to promote and facilitate the digital health literacy education sessions, because that is something that we do all the time, particularly in the public library setting, but getting to be more in the medical library setting. Yeah, no, I, I think we'd be happy to, to do it. We've begun to work with one or two library groups informally about it, but I think the curriculum we have to teach digital literacy, we can send manuals, PowerPoint slides, handout assessment tools. And I think for the right patient groups, it, it just can be very impactful. And I think we also realize our team is primarily psychiatrists and, and clinicians, we're, we're not experts in digital literacy. I think we figured out what our patients need and we built it. So I think we're always happy to work with people who have more expertise in specialization because I think it'll just become a better thing that we can share. And given that everything we talked about is non-commercial and open, I think the only condition we have is that if we make it better, we can share it with more people as well. Well, I would be very open and open to receiving um, your handouts, packet information, because I am going out in our community more here in Hall County. And that is something that through our community needs assessment that we realize we need to work with our community members on. Yeah. So if you send me an, an email afterwards, I'll, I'll connect you and get you our stuff right away. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, Dr. Torres, it's Oliver Glass here. Um, I know that we worked on the article in 2016 and uh, there was reference to the SMART study um, in that article. Could you tell us a little bit more? Did something happen with that? I may have referenced it a little bit today, but. Yeah, so, so I think there are so many different studies we, we've started and that we've kind of worked with 
on it. I think in essence, what we've realized in part is one, the digital phenotyping data as we talk about has to be one, just really high quality to, to get good behavioral features that we trust. Sensor data has to be really good. And I think that we've learned since 2016 is how to get the digital data quality a little bit higher in better quality. In part, you see, we started in a research way working with Apple and Google to get better sensor data. So I think we get out a little bit better information from it because of that. So, so I think some of our earlier studies have been, we, we've learned a lot of parts from it, but I think it's almost like we have to keep redoing it because the technology is evolving so quickly. What the phones can do and record is so, so different. So a lot of, I feel like sometimes we're on this constant treadmill. We do something, it's interesting and we go, oh my gosh, now the data looks like this. Apple has made the rules like this. Let's keep going. Clearly the pace of technology is just kind of rocketed with COVID or interest in it. So we don't have as much. I think we probably have, should be redoing the whole thing. Right, and I think we were, you know, we mentioned the virtual reality and persecutory delusions. And yeah. um, I don't know if you had any information kind of based on the latest virtual reality technology and if that's something you're interested in pursuing further. We haven't ourselves done VR in part just because the headsets cost money and the smartphones are generally all of our patients have them. Though I do think the latest evidence on VR is very positive for, it's basically different exposure therapies. And there's pretty good evidence that these VR programs can really help people more with the negative symptoms sometimes in schizophrenia, especially sometimes also you can do cognitive training on it. So it can really, and of course the positive symptoms, the hallucination. So I think VR is, up and coming. I've always been interested in this thing called Google Cardboard, where you basically put on essence of cardboard box over your head, but you put your smartphone into a slot and you put some kind of cheap $1 glasses, but it turns your smartphone into a poor man's VR set. And I think what's appealing about that to me is then we actually could give that to all of our patients, right? We don't have to buy them. I don't even know how much Apple's new VR set's going to cost. It's like $4,000 of taxes. So it's, it's way right. too much. And I know like Facebook has a VR thing or, or meta, but I, I think it, it will be an important thing to do. We just haven't delved into it because the smartphone alone keeps us on our toes of, of keeping it working. Thank you for talking here. It's good seeing you. Yes. So it looks like there's a um, question in the chat. Were yeah. there certain factors or pieces of phone data that were more predictive of relapse into psychosis than others, or is the data used on a more individual basis to determine patterns, baselines, et cetera? It's a good question. I think what we, a lot of the analysis we do sets an individual baseline and we look for someone's personal baseline because the way that people use their phones is so different and the amount of sleep that people get is so different. So for now, it really is, individualized to each person. I do think if we had a large enough sample across enough sites, we could potentially find more universal patterns. But I think at this point, it's safe to say, at least from phone data, no one has kind of found a digital marker that predicts it. I think that international NIH study across sites across the world, with 43 sites and 1,000 people, I think that one has a chance of perhaps finding kind of one signal 
But for now, it's not bad to have an individual prediction thing because I mean, people do want it to work well for themselves and the phone is a good predictor. But right now, people seem to have really different pathways towards relapse. I think that's why it's been so hard for us clinically to predict is we know non-adherence of medication is part of it, but what comes before that is a little bit of a mystery. So we've had some people, they've had sleep changes before have triggered it. We've had some people, it's mobility. Because some people, they spend more time at home. That seems to be a negative indication. Some people have less time, that's better. So it, it's very personalized. Dr. this is Dr. Prasad. One, two questions. One, I was looking at MindLamp. I couldn't see alcohol use or drug use on that. Am I not being able to find it or is it there? It should be there under substance abuse, maybe under supported conditions. There should be a supported conditions. Okay, that makes sense. So probably yeah. under the supported condition. Yeah. And my next question, suppose your own love, love one was going through anxiety or any issues, do you have any favorite apps that you could, I mean, like you saw, there are so many apps. What are your go-to favorites? So it's fun. I actually, what I end up doing is I go into a database. I go for price. I go to totally free, like not free to download or things. Then I basically check in privacy and I put most of the filters for has a privacy policy, keeps data on the device. Then I go to anxiety and you'd be surprised how few apps, and I go to like has supporting studies. Even though there's so many apps, if you begin to ask like a minimum threshold of questions of privacy evidence, you, you get down to like four or five. And oftentimes it's ironic is you get down to apps made by the VA, the Veterans Administration, because generally they have really good privacy policies. They have evidence. They have some engagement features, but I basically, with my patients, work through each one with it. Because it usually takes about, once you kind of familiarize, familiarize yourself with the database, it takes about 30 seconds to go through it. And then you'll be funny because one month you'll check it and you'll be like, oh, the answer is different now because we updated it. So I, I, I don't trust the apps enough to kind of say this is the best one. But I think like, I'll give an example. Like there's one called Plum Village. It does mindfulness. That's pretty good. It's like completely free. So I'm always, when I see patients like using Calm or Headspace, I'm like, why are you paying money? You could probably be doing that for a lot. There's a lot of better things you could use your money for, or here's a free one. But sometimes what I do too, is I ask my patients an intake. I say, are you using any herbal supplements? No, Dr. Torres. Are you using any digital supplements such as apps? So sometimes by normalizing it, you would be surprised like what people will tell you they're using. You're like, that is fascinating. I now know all these interesting things about you. And then sometimes you can be like, carry on, or you can be like, there's time, let's talk about what those mean and what you're looking for. But there is weird stuff on the internet and the app stores without saying more. The reason why I'm asking is uh, we have a very good employee assistance program and we've started a subsect for residents, uh, residents, uh, mental wellness and uh, employee assistance also. So our hospital is giving subsidized membership to Calm and CBTI and all those things. But it's just such a pain because it's you still have to pay for those things, right? Yeah. And then people use it for one month or two months and then they don't keep up yeah. with it. I mean, 
we saw the engagement curve. I, I'd say they use it for 10 days. I'll be even more so sick. I love that engagement curve idea. Yeah, yeah, that was very good. Thank so you for I, that. I, yeah. Any other questions or comments? All right, Dr. Torres, I think that's it. Excellent. Thank you all so much. Thank Bye. you. Appreciate your